0: The Slaughter in May podcast. Welcome to the February 2023 edition of our Tax News Highlights podcast. I am Zoe Andrews, PSL counsel and head of tax knowledge. And I am Tanya Felling,
1: senior professional support lawyer in the tax department. In this podcast, we will cover the upper tribunal decisions in Harrison and Morrison's, HMRC's transfer pricing and DPT statistics for 21 22, and HMRC's report on its financial institution notice powers. We will also provide an update on international tax reform and discuss HM Treasury's response to its online sales tax consultation and the OECD's new manual on handling multilateral maps and APAs. This podcast was recorded on the 14th of February, 2023, clearly the best way to spend Valentine's Day, and reflects the law and guidance on that date. We don't have many cases to report this month,
0: but Harrison is worth a mention for the Monty Python reference alone. Indeed. But first, I'll just put this in context. Back in May 2021, in a case called Tooth, the Supreme Court brought an end to the doctrine of staleness of a discovery. The argument was that HMRC should be prevented from bringing a discovery assessment if it sat on the information discovered for too long before making an assessment, so that the discovery went stale. The Supreme Court had set out its comprehensive reasoning why Charlton, which was the basis for the decision by the Court of Appeal in Tooth that staleness was a doctrine that could prevent a discovery assessment being valid, was wrongly decided on this issue. But as the Supreme Court decided the case on another ground, the comments on staleness were obiter. In the case of Harrison, the taxpayer argued that the upper tribunal should ignore the Supreme Court in Tooth because what it said about staleness was obiter, and instead be bound by the court of appeals decision that staleness did exist as that was the ratio of the decision. So the argument was basically that the ratio of a lower court trumps orbiter of a higher court. That's right. But the upper tribunal was rightly having none of this. And here's the quote. We do not accept that notwithstanding tooth SC, the doctrine of staleness is like Monty Python's parrot, not dead, only sleeping. It is deceased. Given our decision, we do not need to and do not decide whether on the facts of the discovery in this case would have been stale.
1: I also enjoyed the Morrison's case on the classification of naked and organics bars for VAT purposes. HMRC had denied Morrison's application for a VAT refund on the basis that, as the bars were confectionery, their supplies were standard rated. The first-year tribunal had sided with HMRC, and Morrison's appealed, arguing that the FTT had wrongly treated the following two factors as irrelevant to the question whether the bars were confectionary, their healthiness, and the absence of ingredients such as cane sugar, butter, and flour associated with traditional confectionery. The VAT classification of naked and organic bars may be a somewhat niche issue, but the case is of wider interest for its discussion of the threshold for challenging the FTT's conclusion in respect of the application of a multifactorial test. In addition to VAT classifications, multifactorial tests are used to determine, for example, the source of interest, whether an activity amounts to a trade, or whether a person should be treated as an employee. So this case could have a wide impact. What did the UT say about multifactorial tests?
0: In order to set aside the FTT's decision, the UT would have to find an error of law. But even where an error of law is found, a decision is not automatically set aside. This is a matter for the UT's discretion. And where multifactorial tests are concerned, there is a need for appellate caution. Due deference must be accorded to the FTT's role in carrying out the multifactorial evaluation. But this appellate caution really relates to the weighing of different factors and matters of degree. The situation where the FTT has taken into account an irrelevant factor or failed to take into account a relevant factor is rather different. Taking into account the wrong factors is itself an error of law. The next
1: question is then whether this error is sufficiently material to set aside the decision and the materiality threshold in these circumstances is whether the FTT might have reached a different decision had it taken into account the correct factors, not whether it would have reached a different conclusion, as HMRC had argued. This is clearly good news for taxpayers looking to challenge a first instance decision. Although succeeding in such a challenge may not necessarily lead to an immediate resolution of the dispute. In this case, the UT did not
0: remake the FTT's decision, but referred it back to a differently constituted FTT. And now for some statistics on Transfer Pricing and Diverted Profits Tax, DPT, for 2021-2022. The good news for taxpayers is that transfer pricing inquiries, including real-time interventions, settled within the year have increased by 51 to 175 from the previous year, and the average age of settled inquiries has dropped by two months to 34 months. This is despite the fall in the number of staff working on international issues involving MNEs. It's not such good news for taxpayers requesting advanced pricing agreements, APAs, however, as the number of applications made has increased since the previous year, but the number of APAs agreed during the year has gone down. And the average time-to-reach agreement is now 58.3 months, nearly three months longer than the previous year.
1: Advanced Thin capitalization Agreements, ATCAS, tend to still be agreed more quickly than APAs, but their numbers dropped more sharply and the time taken-to-reach agreement has increased significantly. In 2020-2021, 23 ATCAS were agreed and the average time taken-to-reach agreement was 28.1 months. For 2021-2022, the numbers were 7 and 44 months. The number of ATKAs in force also declined from 97 to 44. HMIC note that it is possible that following the introduction of the corporate interest restriction, fewer groups apply for ATKAs as interest deductions may be restricted to lower amounts than would otherwise be permitted under the arms length principle. For taxpayers who still wish to agree in ATKA, the long lead-in times
0: are, however, bad news. ADCAS are an area where long delays are unwelcome as interest costs tot up. A gold star to HMRC for the mutual agreement MAP statistics, which for these purposes cover transfer pricing and permanent establishment profit attribution issues only and not any other MAP issues. These show the number of MAP cases resolved in the year more than doubled the previous year, and the average time to resolve cases has decreased to 21.1 months from 34.4 months. HMRC clearly has its eye on the prestigious OECD MAP Awards, and being able to resolve international disputes comparatively quickly could enhance the UK's attractiveness for inward investment. The Profit Diversion Compliance Facility, PDCF, was launched in 2019, securing
1: over £516 million additional revenue from resolution proposals and changes in taxpayer behaviour. HMRC reports that the PDCF is proving to be very successful. Around two-thirds of the large businesses targeted decided to use the facility to bring their tax affairs up to date quickly and efficiently. HMRC is reviewing how the PDCF can be expanded and used to help address other areas of tax risk. And finally, DPT. According to the report... Over £8 billion in tax has been secured since DPT was introduced in 2015, and a further £2.4 billion of tax is under consideration as at the end of March 2022 in around 100 reviews into multinationals with arrangements to divert profits, including those
0: who have registered under the PDCF. HMRC's report on the Financial Institution Notice announces that HMRC have moved closer towards meeting the OECD's minimum standard for the timely response to another jurisdiction's request for information. FINS were introduced in the Finance Act 2021. They enable HMRC to request information from a financial institution to check a person's tax position, or for the purpose of collecting a tax debt without prior approval from a tribunal, as would be required in order to request information from another third party. The report notes that between the start of July 2021 and the end of March 2022, 355 FINS were issued, 39.7% of which were issued for international information requests. As a result, the average time taken by HMRC to respond to the relevant international requests went down to 197 days, a significantly shorter period than the 365 days it took on average in 2018, when the UK was reviewed by the OECD's Global Forum on Transparency and Exchange. During the report period, no complaints were received from taxpayers or financial institutions in respect of the FINS issued. It appears that the financial institutions' concern that they would be inundated with onerous requests did not materialise. There are two other interesting points in the report. Can FINS be used to obtain taxpayer
1: location data? meaning information on where the taxpayer was when they accessed their online or mobile banking account. The report confirms that, following discussion with the representative body, HMRC has decided not to use the FIN to obtain this information. The representative body also raised the question whether FINs could or should be used to obtain information on a financial institution's employees or contractors, as this would put a financial institution in a position different from other employers. I have a lot of sympathy for this point, But the report confirms that HMRC's view is that the legislation allows a FIN to be used for this purpose, where all the relevant statutory conditions and safeguards are satisfied.
0: International tax reform makes it onto our podcast yet again, and is likely to be a frequent visitor this year, as the activity of the OECD and the inclusive framework intensifies in the run-up to the commencement of the global minimum tax, or GLOBE rules, next year. Since our last podcast, the OECD presented the findings of their impact assessment at a webinar, The impact assessment report itself will follow in the coming months. We have also had the first tranche of agreed administrative guidance published on the 2nd of February on the Globe Rules, which will eventually make its way into revised commentary on the model rules. So tell us about the impact assessment. The impact assessment showed significantly higher
1: revenues expected from international tax reform than shown by the OECD's 2020 assessment. The OECD explained this was the result of more accurate and reliable data sets drawing from CBCR reports and in respect of Amount A of Pillar 1 from the publicly available financial accounts of the particular m and groups in scope of Amount A and taking into account design changes of the rules agreed since the 2020 assessment. Pillar 1 is now estimated to bring annual global tax revenue gains of between 13 and 36 billion US dollars and more of that will go to developing countries because of design changes. This is a lot more impressive, if it ever happens, than the 5 to 12 billion US dollars which the OECD estimated in their 2020 impact assessment, which prompted commentators to question whether the complexity was really worth it. Pillar 2 is the really big revenue raiser though, estimated to result in annual global revenue gains of around 220 billion US dollars, up from 150 billion US dollars in the 2020 impact assessment. It may not be as high as this in 2024, however, as the data taken was from 2018, and so does not take into account the impact of COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, the 2022 global increase in inflation, and the ongoing implementation of some aspects of the BEPS measures and resulting behavioral changes, and the U.S. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We don't have the time for a deep dive into the administrative guidance, but we will mention a few significant points that have been agreed. So one question everyone was waiting to get the
0: answer to is how is U.S. Guilty going to be treated? Initially, it was hoped that changes would be made to guilty to align it with the Globe rules, but it was not possible to get those changes passed in the US, and so the possibility of guilty being treated as equivalent to an income inclusion rule has for now gone away. Instead, it has been agreed that guilty will be treated as a CFC tax regime, and so tax under guilty will be included in the covered taxes part of the Jurisdictional Effective Tax Rate or ETR calculation. However, as guilty is calculated on a blend of income, losses and or creditable taxes of multiple CFCs, it is too difficult to trace the CFC tax to a specific constituent entity as the globals require. The administrative guidance deals with this by providing for a time-limited simple allocation method for guilty and other blended CFC tax regimes, which will apply to financial years ending on or before the 30th of June, 2027. The IF will then assess whether to allow the special method to continue after that period. So we know where we stand with guilty, but what does the guidance say about the US Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax, or CAMT? The guidance
1: does not mention CAMT by name, but it is obvious that it cannot be a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, QDMTT, because it is too different from the GLOBE minimum tax. It even describes itself as an alternative. Hopefully we will get confirmation and later guidance on whether it is a cover tax, and if so, whether there will be a special allocation
0: method for it too. Do you think that a QDMTT safe harbour will be a game changer? The QDMTT safe harbour, to follow in later guidance, will provide compliance simplifications for MNE groups operating in a jurisdiction that has adopted a QDMTT that meets certain conditions. One such simplification is exempting the ME group from the requirement to perform additional globe calculations in respect of constituent entities located in a safe harbour jurisdiction. This will be a game-changer, assuming enough QDMTTs meet the conditions which are to be developed in future work, as it would let the QDMTTs do all the heavy lifting rather than the globals themselves in order to achieve the 15% global minimum tax. This advantage is in addition to the benefit of enabling the QDMTT jurisdiction to keep tax revenue that would otherwise be picked up by another jurisdiction. Some discrepancies between domestic tax bases and the Globe tax base have been addressed in the guidance, haven't they? Yes.
1: The UK consultation on the implementation of the Globe rules raised a number of scenarios where amounts would be brought into account for the calculation of the jurisdictional ETR, because they are shown as income in the accounts even though for tax purposes they're excluded or disregarded, and so untaxed. This would have the effect of lowering the jurisdictional ETR, and in some cases would result in a top-up tax being due. There are several tweaks to the rules, which look as if they have resulted from UK representations, but don't single out the UK by name, so equivalent rules in other jurisdictions will similarly benefit. Take, for example, the UK's corporate rescue debt release rules and the UK's rules on net investment hedges. Under the global Rule, significant top-up tax liabilities could arise where a debtor has a debt released and the resulting accounting income is not taxed under the domestic legislation. In the corporate rescue context, imposing a top-up tax on the release of debt in this way would defeat the purpose of the domestic tax rule and impose a tax burden on companies already in financial distress. And so the guidance provides that in certain circumstances, including those which mirror the conditions for the UK's corporate rescue rules, An election can be made to exclude the debt release from the GLOBE tax base. There is no provision for the creditor in the first tranche of guidance, but the IF will consider whether further guidance in relation to the creditor is necessary. Debt releases outside the corporate rescue context will not be excluded from the GLOBE tax base, so
0: in-scope groups should look to tidy up any intra-group loans before the rules commence. The UK's disregard rules exempt forex gains and losses from transactions that hedge the currency risk associated with certain net investments in foreign operations, and it is welcome to see that the guidance provides that an m and group may elect to treat gains or losses on a net investment hedge as excluded from the GLOBE calculation. This will prevent such hedges from distorting the ETR and will align the treatment of the hedge with the treatment of the equity investment it is hedging. There are also a number of provisions in the guidance beneficial to insurance companies, such as treating restricted Tier 1 capital, which insurers are required to issue under regulatory requirements, as debt for GLOBE purposes, in the same way as additional Tier 1 capital issued by banks for regulatory reasons, is treated as debt. While we're on the subject of new taxes, what is the latest on the UK's Online Sales Tax, or OST? It was announced in the autumn statement that the government has decided not to proceed with an OST,
1: but that there will be a number of reforms to the business rate system responding to key requests from business, such as revaluation of the tax base and a £13.6 billion support package over the next five years. In the future, more frequent revaluations will make the system fairer and more responsive to changes in the commercial property market. The Treasury has now published the response to the consultation on the OST which explains in more detail than given at the autumn statement why there will not be an OST. In brief, such a tax was too difficult to design, how do you even define taxable revenue from online sales, and it would not achieve its intended purpose. The £1 billion a year that it was estimated to raise would not be sufficient to replace the business rate system or to fund the scale of cuts to business rates which stakeholders had called for and there was no support for an OST as a standalone policy. One of the reasons for considering an OST in the first place was to create a more level playing field between in-store and online retail, as the former typically pays higher business rates than the latter. According to the response document, the business rates revaluation and relief package will address this imbalance with total business rates paid by the retail sector expected to fall by 20% and rates paid by large distribution warehouses expected to rise by 27%.
0: Going back to the OECD, back in 2019, the Forum on Tax Administration decided that in order to improve tax certainty, the wider use of multilateral mutual agreement procedures and advanced pricing agreements should be explored. The OECD then worked with a focus group of 19 jurisdictions, including the UK, to produce a new manual on the handling of multilateral maps and APAs, which was published at the start of February. The manual covers the legal basis and procedure for handling multilateral cases. Multilateral cases generally develop as of bilateral discussion, where the two tax authorities agree that the case cannot fully be resolved without the involvement of a third country. Both multilateral maps and APAs would have to derive their legal basis from the relevant treaties, and more specifically, they're equivalent to Article 25 of the OECD model convention. From a taxpayer perspective, There can be one complicating factor here. Some jurisdictions take the view that, where the taxpayer has filed a MAP request, the case has to be considered under the first two limbs of this article, which may mean that the taxpayer would have to file MAP requests under all relevant treaties. Other jurisdictions take a more flexible approach, deriving authority for the involvement of additional jurisdictions under the third limb of Article 25, such that the taxpayer would not have to file additional requests. The manual encourages jurisdictions to make clear in their map guidance which view they subscribe to. On receipt
1: of a multilateral map or APA request, the competent authority should notify the other relevant jurisdictions. Once the multilateral state is initiated, the manual notes that there are different possible approaches. One option, which is likely to be preferable in most cases, is a multilateral approach of discussions between all jurisdictions concerned with the aim of reaching one multilateral agreement. The alternative would be a bilateral approach where discussions remain between the competent authorities under each relevant treaty with a view to reaching a number of bilateral agreements but in a coordinated fashion. Such coordination might be achieved through an observer competent authority with access to all documents and oversight of all discussions. But
0: what happens if the authorities cannot reach agreement? In relation to map cases, arbitration could be the answer, or at least part of it. In particular, following the, d- the adoption of the MLI, An increasing number of treaties allow the taxpayer to request arbitration, where the case is not resolved within a certain period, commonly two years, with an option for the competent authorities to extend this by agreement. Two years is likely to be a rather short time frame in the context of multilateral map cases, so the manual suggests that, where possible, the authorities should agree to extend this to 36 months. Alternatively, where treaties don't include the option to extend the period by agreement, the manual suggests that jurisdictions may consider revisiting their treaty provisions. The ideal timeline for a typical multilateral case set out in the manual also envisages mutual agreement between the competent authorities being reached 36 months after the MAP request.
1: In addition to this timing point, from the taxpayer's perspective, arbitration will only be a complete answer if all relevant treaties contain arbitration provisions, in which case it may be possible to arrange a multilateral arbitration. Where only some contain such provisions, arbitration would likely
0: yield only a partial resolution. Looking ahead to next month, we have the budget on the 15th of March and the Spring Finance Bill is expected to be introduced shortly thereafter. Based on prior announcements, provisions of interest in this bill include the introduction of the Multinational Top-Up Tax and QDMTT, and of the new Transfer Pricing documentation requirement, R&D tax relief changes, amendments to the Qualifying Asset Holding Companies regime, and changes to double taxation relief claims. There may also be other measures announced at the Budget for inclusion in the Bill. It is rare to have a fiscal event without the announcement of a new temporary tax these days, so let's see what the Government comes up with next. The Chancellor has already stated there will be no tax cuts. And that
1: leaves me to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please contact Zoe or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. Further insights from the Slaughter and May Tax Department can be found on the European Tax Blog, www.europeantax.blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at SlaughterMayTax. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.